0: Alright, welcome to the Artist of Motion podcast, people. Episode number 16 is here. Before we get going, I want to mention that I am truly grateful for all of the guests we've had on this show. I get emails and Facebook messages about our guests pretty frequently these days. People are loving hearing about the stories and experiences shared on this show. I'll tell you a story. I had one gentleman who is not a martial artist send me a message through our email account, which is pod at artistemotion.com, who I've never met. And he buzzed me to tell me that one of our guests inspired him so much to make a change in his life, he quit the job he hated, he moved cities, and he found a job doing something he loves. Then he started dating someone he's over the moon excited about, and he's found a teacher that has inspired him to even train in the martial arts. So he's positively changed his life, relationship, and has found a calling in martial arts training he never knew existed, just because one of our guests said something that clicked for him to make a change. I wanted to share that out there, because that story gave me goosebumps when I read it. The entire purpose of this podcast is to provide a positive platform for our modern day legends and warriors to share their stories so that people across the globe can benefit from their wisdom. All right, let's talk some about this week's episode. Today we're featuring an avid motorcyclist, a student of the martial arts since 1966, and a gentleman with decades of real world experience putting his training to work as a law enforcement officer. Grandmaster Richard Post joins us today hear about his training in a couple of different lineages most notably his long history with the three shields kenpo style under joe dimmick we were supposed to link up earlier this year but i came down with the 2018 version of whatever that plague bug is floating around so we missed that meeting in person mr post was kind enough to work with me and get this one done by phone i think you'll enjoy it so let's get to the interview all right welcome to this episode of the artist in motion podcast today we have grandmaster richard post with us he started in 1966 in judo and jujitsu eventually earning a second degree black belt and then began training in Kempo in the 1970s under the Joe Dimmick lineage. Longtime student and the third person promoted to 10th degree black belt into three shields slash standby Kempo lineage. He retired from a career in law enforcement, and he's now enjoying retirement riding his motorcycles and is an avid Harley-Davidson rider. Welcome to the show today, Mr. Post. How are you, sir?
1: I appreciate you having me. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to talking to you.
0: It's going to be fun. I haven't had a bad conversation yet.
1: Well, there's there's always a first for everything, so we'll see how that goes.
0: (laughs) I don't think it's going to be today. So, uh, for those of us playing the home game out there who might be unfamiliar with your your history, how about giving us the short version of your uh, your martial arts history slash anything else you want to throw in there? You know, uh, law enforcement career wise or anything like that.
1: Uh, Sounds good. Uh, Like you said, I started in 1966. It was on those parks and recreation classes. uh, parents thought I should know how to defend myself, so they signed me up for it. The class was $5 for six months. But uh, one wow. of the stipulations was, you needed to have a gi. And at that time, I grew up in Texas, so the only place you could get a gi was, uh, they ordered it from Japan and they were $30. So $5 for six months of classes and $30 for a gi, which was pretty pretty expensive back then. So. You know, hats off to my parents for, you know, wanting to instill that kind of confidence and training in my life at an early age. So uh, it was interesting. Back then, we had no mats, and so we were getting thrown on the floor, and uh, we would choke each other out as part of the class. And, you know, you think about that in those standards today, uh, that's not going to fly. You, know, you get people, parents on the mats, all concerned about their kids. Back then, they just sit back and just let it happen. But um, taught me a lot of things, how to defend myself, and gradually I progressed through the ranks and moved on up, and through high school, uh, studying Judo and Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, the black belt was Judo, and then once you got your black belt, uh, Jiu-Jitsu uh, was the second part of it. So, you know, they taught you to be a little more uh, devastating with joint breaks and things like that, so. um Really enjoyed it, had a had a lot of fun doing it, but what I felt was lacking was I didn't know how to fight with it. Uh, it was great. Somebody comes up and grabs you, puts you in a hold or something, you do what you need to do. But as far as actually fighting with it, I always felt that that was a weak point. So um, late 70s, after I graduated from high school, I moved to California to uh, go to college because college was free at that time, junior college. And... I moved out here and um, I thought, well, if there's a martial arts studio or something that I find I'm going to jump into that and see what that's all about and start back up again. So, as luck would have it, I ran across a studio that was two blocks over from where I was living and it said Santai Kimpo And underneath it, it had karate and kung fu. And, you know, kung fu during the 70s was a big draw because there wasn't a lot of kung fu classes when i grew up in texas it was pretty much judo, jiu-jitsu or taekwondo so i was excited to see what that was all about so i got my first introductory class and uh the person that was teaching it at the time was one of mr Dimick's brown belts he was the first brown which we had the old ranking system white belt four stripes brown belt three stripes and then black belt and he was a first brown, which is three stripes, and he was on a mandatory year weight that we had at that time um, to get your black belt. But he was one of those students that really excelled, and Mr. Demon gave him the permission to open up a studio in Yucca Valley, California. So that's where I started. So I went in and signed up, got my introductory class. And we were going through the motions and participating and I wasn't real sure at first. This uh guy that was teaching, I mean, he was really good, he was proficient, but he was one of those little tiny guys and yeah, I was pretty uh large in stature at the time. I'm even larger now, since I've been eating a lot, but you know adding padding, I think that's part of the program, body armor for my law enforcement career <laughs> anyway. Um watching him teach he had a lot of speed and it was pretty impressive but during the middle of class this uh individual outside was causing a problem he had too much to drink and was being a knucklehead and then he came into the uh studio and he was you know challenging people and talking a bunch of crap and trying to uh instill fear and let everybody know that he was this and that and whatnot so i was really impressed that uh Brownbell brown belt walked over. You know, he must have been about 5, 4, 120 pounds, and he locked this guy up in a joint lock, and he escorted him out of the studio. And I was so impressed by that. I thought, wow, this, this is something I want to do. And I've been a student of Kempo ever since. So I stayed with him for a couple years. I got up to my uh, um, first brown, which was... Uh, or third round one strike, I always get those backwards. Um, He was going to go to paramedic school, so he had taken me as far as he he could. So he introduced me to Mr. Demick, and Mr. Demick was going to take me on as a student. But it was interesting. There were uh, two other Kempo teachers in the area, but Mr. Demick had a special... uh, process for students that wanted to come and take classes from him get a waiting list of over a year you had to write him a note or a letter telling him why you wanted to take classes and send it to him and then he wouldn't respond to you to see what your response would be and how you would react to that and you know that, that kind of messes with some people you think well should i call shouldn't i call You know, do I send him another note? Do I ask what, you know, what the situation was? So I did the right thing. I wrote him another uh, letter to follow that up with. And uh, he accepted me as a student. So, you know, his his whole thing was, I'm only going to teach a specific amount of people. I don't care about anything else. And my major interest is their attitude. So I happened to pass the test with a little encouragement from um, my previous instructor. And that's how I came to start taking classes with him. And he took me through the brown belt levels. And prior to getting my black belt, I um, moved to San Diego to continue my uh, college education. And I was kind of concerned how this was going to interfere with my training. So I asked him, you know, how this was going to work and he said well you know when you come up give me a call and uh, see if i can fit you into a class so um i had always been really impressed with him and his abilities and so even going away down to san diego where there was a lot of other uh, martial arts schools and opportunities down there i would still come back on weekends and take classes from him and i don't know The mileage, it was about uh, 270 to miles round trip, and I would go back not to get a class, but to be put on a waiting list for a class. So, like I said, there's a a lot of opportunities to take martial arts classes down in San Diego, but I saw an opportunity with Mr. Dimmock that um, he, he was teaching what I really, really thought was best and beneficial to me so I stuck with him and then eventually it paid off and I got my own private spot permanent position and I've been with him ever since and that's been over 40 years now so been real happy with that
0: that's wonderful that's just, I love hearing stories like that where you just find something that makes you click and find something that turns you on for learning and you just stay with it that's awesome
1: Well, I went down to San Diego, and there was a lot of good people down there teaching Kempo and other martial arts, and I had gone into this one school because I had this brilliant idea that, um, you know, that they would be happy to have other Kempo students come in, and then you could uh, exchange ideas, work out together, see differences, and, you know, I thought, wow, you know, everybody's going to be that way. I, I didn't realize that it doesn't work like that, and Maybe I was a little naive because, you know, growing up doing the uh, Judo and the Jiu-Jitsu, that's how it was. You were always welcome in another school to train. So um, this guy who was the instructor there, we did, I, I think it would be fair to say that we didn't hit it awkward well. You know, I was being very courteous, polite. I was bowing to him and, uh, you know, showing the total respect that he deserved. He was a fourth degree black, I believe, at the time and we started discussing and then he was telling me without ever having seen me do anything that I was doing everything all wrong, that he was going to have to reteach me and that we're going to have a patch ripping ceremony where he was going to rip off my patch and replace it with his. And yeah, you know, I looked at this guy and I'm just saying, man, you fell on your head. <laughs> you think <laughs> I'm going to be doing that. So I, I was respectful. I got up and I, I bowed to him and I said, you know, I'm, this was a mistake. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I just wanted to come in. I didn't want to take classes from you. I just wanted to, uh, have some math time, you know, and I thought that you might have a fee for that. So looking back on that, that was probably a little more insulting and disrespectful. But I thought, well, you know, this, this guy is, uh, starting to get a little aggravated. So I, I, I should probably just go ahead and leave. And I remember I bowed down and I said, well, I guess I, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave. And he, he stood up real quick and he goes, what makes you think you can leave? <laughs> and I just looked at him and I shook my ass. I said, Oh, hell no. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I have a temper, you know, so I kind of nutted up and, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we had a physical disagreement about whether or not I was going <laughs> to leave go or not. And, um, we ended up, you know, it, it got physical and I, I totally look back and I'm embarrassed and apologize for my attitude that day, but, uh, you know, it left some blood on the wall and it wasn't mine. Darn. So, so later I ended up uh, working out with one of, uh, not working out, but, uh, I worked at a sporting goods store and, uh, one of the students was working there and we were going back and forth and he was telling me about these, this incident that yeah, his his instructor's kind of crazy, and that somebody had come in and challenged him, and that he had taken a uh, boken and uh, struck him upside the head, and that's where the blood on the wall came from. And I remember thinking, I don't remember having any blood coming off of me when I left. So, you know, I just kind of smiled and nodded in agreement and said, wow, yeah, he does sound kind of like a crazy guy. So... (laughs) Well, that was my lesson. I thought, well, I'm not going to pursue anything further down here with that, with the Kempo. I'm quite content with, you know, training with Mr. Dimmick, and uh, I don't mind the drive back and forth, even if I'm going to be put on a waiting list or not. So to me, it was worth it. I tried to go another route to get some extra math time in. That didn't work out. And uh, one thing led to another, and, you know, I'm still with Mr. Dimmick to this day. So everything I do, everything I own, You know, as far as success, uh, abilities and whatnot, I I owe it all to Mr. Demick. uh, You know, he he is uh, truly a grandmaster, in my opinion, and I don't particularly use that word very often. You know, I, I never heard anybody say or call anybody grandmaster or master until after Mr. Parker passed away um everybody was always mr you know i always heard him referred to as mr parker but then again i wasn't around him very often but uh i did have a discussion i had a class a private class with mr dimmick one day and uh after class i walked out and mr parker was sitting in his living room dimmick always had studios at his house and um Here's Mr. Parker sitting on the couch, and I was, wow, you know, I was all blown away that he was sitting there. I thought, how how awesome was that, that not only was he there, but uh, he didn't interrupt my class, which I would have, you know, Mr. Parker, hey, come on in, you know, I'm going to debate you coming into my class. But he was patient, waited till I was through, and then he was very nice. And, of course, you know, I'm bound to everybody. I'm bound to Mr. Parker. And I'm just thrilled to be there. And he would come up to Mr. Dimmock's house a lot. Uh, he was going to put out a video series on Kempo, and he was talking to Mr. Dimmock a lot about the video editing and things and what kind of machines and stuff to use and advice about how to put it together because he had something pretty special that he was working on so um that's how I got to see Mr. Parker and I I never had physical time on the mat with Mr. Parker but I did get to speak to him a lot and have um um, conversations with him at the internationals uh it it was kind of weird I told you I'd never heard of Kempo when I first came to California and um all of a sudden I'm hearing about Kempo and Mr. Parker and the international. So I, I thought I would go down and check it for myself. And the first time I saw Mr. Parker it was kind of hilarious because you know he was sprawled out in the between two rows of chairs. He was kind of just laying back, and he had a bowl of nachos on his stomach, and he was just eating nachos. And then when he got done, he took a nap. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, that's that's not the image I had of, of Mr. Parker, you know, and it, it was kind of funny, but later that night he did a demonstration on stage and I was just, my jaw hit the ground. I was just blown away and couldn't believe how fast that man moved and how much power he could and you know, you could almost throw a whirlwind around him as he would do things. So uh, that was my first impression of Mr. Parker. And then, uh, later. Uh, before I started taking classes from Mr. Demick, yeah, I went to the internationals again and Mr. Parker invited, uh, Mr. Demick to get up on stage and do a demonstration. That was in 1981, I believe. And there's a nice little video clip you can see of it on YouTube. And I was just blown away with Mr. Demick and his abilities. And then later I was enough to become a student. So, um. I guess it works out the way it's supposed to.
0: That's great. And then, uh, so we were talking before we got on air here, you were also, uh, as part of your history in the martial arts, you were affiliated with Dave Hebler's organization too, right?
1: Yeah. Later on, um, I met Dave Hebler through a friend of mine that uh, I was teaching. He was a friend and a student. And, um I was asked to be part of Dave Hedler's organization. And I thought, well, that's kind of nice. We get to go around be on testing boards and see what's going on and meet a lot of people in the Kimpo community. And uh, I was a national director for Dave Hebbler for his original American Kimpo Karate Association and also his Protecting Women organization for 20 years. Um, he wrote a book. Uh, how to survive encounters of the worst kind and I was fortunate enough that he um, privileged and honored that he asked me to write a uh, um, chapter in his book Uh, it was a condensed version of a book that I had written about my experiences in the uh, prison system in California and other experiences uh, with through martial arts so I did like a abbreviated chapter for him to kind of touch upon some highlights of things I learned from inmates and, you know, how to defend yourself with predators and, you know, things like that. So, yeah, it it is a great honor to be, you know, thought of well enough that people would want you to do something like that. So, yeah, I I just, sure. (laughs) So, if you ever want to check that out. Yeah, you know, that's available through his organization.
0: Very cool. Yeah. I'm hoping, uh, Dave and I have been kind of playing a uh, Facebook message tag back and forth for the last couple of months. We're hopefully going to nail down a date. He can be on our podcast soon too. So right on.
1: Yeah. He's fun to talk to. He's got a lot of good stories about Elvis.
0: No. Yeah, and he's been around in Kepo since, you know, the late fifties too. So there's not a whole lot of those, of that crowd left. So the more of those guys we can get talked to and hear their stories, it's so much the better.
1: It was kind of nice. I've gone to some events and, um, um, Dave Edler and Mr. Demick were all there together and it was kind of nice to hear Dave called uh, Mr. Demick his senior and I thought wow you know that that's something you don't really hear a lot of those people that are classified as seniors say this guy is my senior so
0: yep really cool stuff so uh, you mentioned the law enforcement. I don't want to ask about anything that may or you know, may be confidential, or you know, uh, might reveal information that's not a good idea to reveal. But um, how do you, how did your law enforcement career dovetail in with your martial arts career?
1: Well, everything I've always done has always been affiliated or associated with martial arts. I always wanted to have jobs and things that I could um, learn something from about you know how to deal with people i mean you can get a basic job in real uh, or in um, retail and dealing with the public because you're always going to have different personalities and whatnot you know, a lot of people say a punch is a punch kick is a kick you know which might be true but it's a different um mentality when you're being attacked by a drunk accountant who's had you know too many drinks you know versus the biggest serial killer in the southwest and you know, there, there's consequences if you lose. So, you know, that always played into it. But uh, I tried uh, being a my law enforcement career, I started with the CHP and um, was injured and I left that. And I had to get into, um, find a job temporarily until I could find something else. So I went to work at a department store May company as a loss prevention manager. And realized I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So, you know, I found the uh, California Department of Corrections is hiring, and they were paying pretty well, you know, considering, you know, being a glorified babysitter. So I thought, well, i would give it a whirl. So I got into that. And uh, I, I think that was something that really let me experience what my abilities were and what it was like to be around people, you know, of that caliber of predator to see how you respond. I mean, in class, you're always saying, oh, well, a guy throws a punch. Well, now you're saying, okay, well, now this mass murderer is throwing a punch at you. You know, how are you going to respond? What's the difference it's going to be? And uh, it was a very, very brutal environment that I got associated in. And it's not like, well, you know, I'm an officer that they respect you. You have to earn the respect, you know, and it's not something that you you will always have. It's something that you have to go in there daily. So just like the inmates, you know, walk the line every day and I have to uh, uh, do what I need to do to get out of there because you never know when it's coming your way. Um, They'll send them at you to check you out to see how you're going to respond. In a situation so when it gets serious they know what to expect from you and part of the biggest lessons that I learned is never ever be predictable and uh you know they're, they're very fond of that they want to see what you're going to do and if you keep changing up on them they hate that <laughs> so I I happen to be pretty good you know we had the presets of being fair firm and consistent and I added you know be unpredictable to that but uh, yeah I have Probably, probably been involved in over uh, fifty riots personally. Been included in it, um, participated in it, and he'll try to get out of it. Uh, my whole studies and you know interest in kempo and martial arts have always been mass attacks and weapons defense. And you know, best thing I can ever I can say to anybody is never ever be unarmed. You know they. Talk about, you know, all this empty hand stuff that they're doing, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, you know, I'm not going to do a, uh, a Kempo mini form on somebody to try to get through the day. You know, I'm, I'm going to go to weapons first and that's outside the prison as well as inside the prison. So anything that you can use as a weapon, anything that you can use to your advantage, of course, as you use it correctly as the department dictates so you don't get into any kind of trouble. But uh, yeah, it was an experience because you never know what you're going to, what you're going to deal with or what you're going to see, but it was a great learning experience. Did you have any specific questions about it or?
0: That was that was just more just the brief overview type thing. So uh, I want not get into some specifics here, referring to multiple different parts of the training, but um, the thing that I triggered right, right. This particular second was, so how do you compare? The mental discipline that you have to have to go into that kind of environment every day with the mental discipline it takes to keep going back into it, you know, basically martial arts training is most people start out with they're getting their butts kicked every day. Eventually, you learn how to kick butt yourself, but for a while, you're just taking punishment from, you know, at least in that time period, you're taking punishment to try to help yourself learn how to not take punishment, right?
1: Well, you're in there and you have to realize that the consequences are the biggest thing. It's like, okay, I beat this guy down, you know, that was trying to hurt me, but hey, this guy's affiliated with this gang. And now all of a sudden, because of that, if you did it inappropriately or unnecessarily, you know, overemphasize the brutality of it, um, you know, they can reach out and they can get you or they'll come at you you know, constantly or you'll continuously have problems with them and, you know, their reach is far beyond the prison. They can come out and get you on the street if they think that you're being totally disrespectful to them. So, you know, you can't just go in there and beat them down because first of all, they've been beaten down their whole lives. And, um, you know, what you have to do is you have to psychologically defeat them. And, you know, that that's something that you have to do just by being around them. You know what scares them and what motivates them. But, the biggest part on your end of it is you got to know what your limitations are. I mean, you see somebody gouging eyeballs out or cutting people's eyes out, you know, how how do you deal with somebody like that? How are you going to fight somebody like that? Unless you're willing to rise to that level specifically, you know, you, you have to kind of become what scares you because it's really amazing that they, they have, Uh, ability to know what scares you what your fears are and you know growing up you know I've had some traumatic experiences and now all of a sudden I'm around these people that are capable of doing the same thing over again so you're you know are you a prey among predators or are you a predator among predators so you you at least have to rise to their level you have to be able to go to that level in an extreme situation if necessary. And if you're not, you need to have alternate plans. And, you know, that was the biggest thing I ever learned. Um, You know, it's psychological. It's not just um, a physical attack, it's psychological. because You're gonna have to deal with that long after. You know, people say, well, I can do this many strikes in this many seconds, but, you know, the the encounter is gonna last a lot longer than a few seconds. You know, I, I have PTSD for some of the stuff that I've been involved in. And, you know, that, that's something I have to deal with. But, um, you know, it is what it is, as they say. You know, one of the first, you know, things I saw, you know, it was really horrible. But I said his inmate he was sitting out on the yard by himself. He was reading a book, and two other inmates approached him for whatever reason. And one of them just did a nice, beautiful roundhouse. Kicked to the guy's face and ended up breaking his zygomatic or and maxillary bone i, I believe it's called you know they were around the eye the mm-hmm. cheekbone there and the guy's eye popped out i don't know about you but i would think wow that would uh cause me a lot of concern you know i would start feeling sorry for myself i hey i don't want to play anymore and don't want to participate but but this guy just got to his basic primitive instincts and uh it was the most unsparing, savage, brutal, instinctive act of survival that I've ever seen. He got up and he dropped the first guy. He just picked him up and slammed him into the ground and broke his neck. And then he grabbed the other guy and he was just beating the tar out of him. I mean, he was smashing his skull in. And, you know, I'm running from across the yard and I'm witnessing this as I'm coming across. And I was just thinking, wow, that was the most interesting impressive, sick thing I've ever seen yeah. in my
0: life. I don't remember that throw from Judo or Jiu-Jitsu.
1: Yeah, and just as I got there, the guy's head exploded because the guy in the tower realized it was life-threatening, and he popped off around and blew the guy's head off. So, you know, now all of a sudden you're thinking, hey kid, you, you want to see something that's going to stick with you the rest of your life? Right. But but it's, in, like I said, the context and the terms that it happens is just so out there. I mean, you you don't you don't learn this stuff in the normal classroom situations, but that was what was beautiful about um, learning things from Mr. Dimmick. You know, I could ask him anything. I could show him that. And once you explain what's going on, I mean, he could help you maneuver and he can help you learn things and he can help you be spontaneous and um, visualize things ahead of time. So, you know, everything I did wasn't on my own. I learned it from Mr. Dimmick, but, you know, one, one day I had an inmate that was going to set me on fire and I was thinking, you know, we don't learn this stuff in technique lines. You know, it's like what category of completion is this kind of, Yeah. How do you defend bed? against fire? Yeah. So it's like, but you get down to your primitive instincts and, you know, people always say, well, sophisticated basics, but you know, when you get down to that instinctive survival mode, you know, there, there's nothing more than that. And you have to be able to change up. You have to be able to adapt to the situation and you, you know, excuse my language, but you have to really be able to pull something out of your ass that you didn't think you were going to be able to ever, you know, have to do or even consider or contemplate doing that. So, you know, I, I've been fortunate. I've been able to get through situations that most people would probably freeze up. And, um, you know, it's like, I think Shakespeare's experience is the teacher of all things.
0: Mm hmm.
1: You know, so you can you can learn from that. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, those people. I just keep going over and over the situation. How could I have done it different? <clears throat> what, what uh, you know, except for avoidance, how could I have kept this from happening? You know, and it's not just physical skills. You know, you have to have a mental strategy when you go in there, and you also have to have um, verbal skills. You, know, you have to be able to distract them and talk to them and, you know, um, basically talk shit to them, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, they're prisoners that can handle it. So, but it, it also goes the other route too, that I've also had inmates save my life. So it goes back and forth. Um, it's a mutual respect thing. And it's like, it's not that I'm showing them favoritism or something. I, I'm being fair, firm, and consistent with them. And they, they like structure. They like to be in that kind of environment. And, um, you know, it it helps in the long term because it kind of gives you, you know, a path that you can go down, but you have to be able to deviate from that path in an instant. Um, My whole thing is always, I mentioned earlier about um, learning mass attacks and uh, weapons defenses and disarms, and I've always had kind of a knack for that. But uh, when I worked at May Company, it was kind of interesting. Um, we had these little wannabe gang members. There were seven They wanted to come in and they were, um, shoplifting and then they would go off and, you know, try and distract you or run interference for you. while other buddies got away. So I was with, um, my boss at the time and he was a former LAPD officer and we had gone outside and we pursued him out and, you know, the he, the guy confronts him and he throws his chest out there like he still has a badge on there and guy punches him and takes him out with one punch. And I'm just thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that
0: wasn't too bright. Yeah,
1: You know, they're 15, 16 year old kids, which isn't a problem. One on one, two on one, you know, not a big deal. But when you get seven on one, it's like a uh, pack of wild dogs. Right.
0: Mm hmm. And they don't quite you know, have so the maturity I, to understand what real injuries are either.
1: Yeah, you know, so I, I started doing my thing, and, yeah, you know, I, I I was going kind of easy at first, and then as it progressed, it, it's one of those moments in your training that you've always heard about, that all of a sudden it just poof, you know, it happens that the guy was behind me, and I knew that he was coming at me with a knife, and he was going to take out one of my kidneys. You know, I could feel his intent. You know, so I ended up doing—we um, call them thunder techniques instead of rod techniques—but I, I did the first part of breaking the thunder on him and uh, disarmed him, and, and then I don't know about you, but when somebody tries to stab me, I take that shit personally. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make an example out of this fool. So I, I lit his ass up, and um, I remember he left a big blood stain as he slid down the uh, glass window on the door. It was interesting because, um, you know, everything happened, you know, the way it was supposed to. It, it did what it was supposed to do. But uh, a couple of weeks later, his uh, grandmother came in to talk to me. And I was thinking, oh, wow, man, this is going to escalate and this is going to turn out bad. And, you know, and she fingered, you know, weighed her finger at me to come in closer to her. And I thought she was going to slap or punch me in the face. But uh, she hugged me. And, she kissed me on the cheek and she thanked me for doing that to her, her grandson. And I was kind of stunned at first. Like, why are you thanking me? And say, you know, he was going down that wrong path. He was going to, you know, doing gang violence and whatever. And, uh, I was having nightmares about you. <laughs> so I was kind of like, wow, you know, <laughs> what, what do you say to something like that? So,
0: well you think about it, it um, made a positive impact on somebody. Negative yeah. negative uh, means of doing so, but positive you know, outcome. So
1: Yeah, so it was kind of one of those rare moments. Um about a year later I read in the paper, um two of the guys that were part of that group that I had gone easy on uh were killed in some other gang violence. And, uh, you know, one of the persons you know, just sat down, they didn't want to participate. And then, you know, I, I kind of escalated the force until I got, the they just terrified them when they saw me open up like that. But it was interesting because about a year after all of this, this guy shows up again that I had really tagged and I guess he wanted a rematch and I was pretty surprised at how big this boy got in a year. Yeah, you know, it's like, man, he's been working out, you know, he had some muscles on him, and he probably put on about 50 pounds, and I was going to go, okay, this is going to be kind of interesting, so I walked up to him, and I smiled at him, you know, and I'm just looking at him and grinning, just, you know, you're looking for me, and he had that mean look on his face, and I just kept looking at him, and next thing I know, I just noticed his body started trembling and vibrating, and all of a sudden, I look down, and I noticed he's standing in a puddle of his own piss.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so, uh um, that, that was the last time I saw him, but uh, it, it was weird. Um, 10, 15 years later, I see him on the news, and he's a minister now, and he's preaching the evils of being members of gangs, and, you know, he, he works with youth.
0: I love hearing turnaround stories like that.
1: And I was like, well, you know, I, I—, I Never really considered him a student, but I guess I schooled the young man. So anyway, you know, that was my, my thing. It's like, okay, I've prepared for mass attacks, you know, in that situation. And, you know, everything from now on, you know, it was going to be biscuits and gravy. So when I got into the prison system, one fine day, uh, we were short staffed and they decided to run full program, which is usually over 800 inmates on the yard and uh, I'm the only dumbass out there wearing green.
0: Yeah, what could go wrong so, with that?
1: Yeah, I know. So <laughs> I protested. I mean, I don't want people to think why you're a total idiot for doing that. I mean, I protested. You know, I said, I, this is dumb. I'm not going to go out there. And so, you know, they basically threatened me, you know, with retaliation, you know, writing me up or whatever, but I didn't. So, yeah, I went out there, and sure as shit, it tees off and, you know, full-blown riot. And here I am just standing there with my ass and I'm going to die.
0: Yeah, what are you going to do with 800 inmates out there and you're the only dude wearing green on the floor? And that's ain't going to
1: go good. But then what the heck am I going to do? So I'm running, you know, for the gate trying to get out and I'm engaging people right and left. So, you know, my strategy with the three shields that Mr. Dimmick always – develop was you know be mobile agile and hostile and uh, that's what I was doing and I was having some good success with that and then you know I come across an inmate that pretty much had been disemboweled and you know he's sitting there trying to hold his intestines in and yeah so I think well I can get off the yard or I can do the right thing and my conscience got the better of me so yeah I stand over him you know I have my side handle baton that we were using at the time. And, uh, yeah, I took off my shirt and I'm trying to, you know, help him keep his intestines in and, you know, other inmates are coming up and they're trying to get to him to finish him off. And then I'm standing there and they're trying to come at me. So I'm doing my thing. And I was thinking, man, I I don't see how this can get any worse. I remember thinking that. And, uh, next thing I know, I, I felt my leg go out from under me. So, um, I got shot. <laughs> so I go, uh, well, so much for solid stances, right? You know, I'm not going to be able to be in a solid stance. And that uh, Daniel Song crane techniques. not going to work in this situation. Wait
0: a minute. When you said got shot, does that mean like friendly fire or does that mean somebody shot the leg on you?
1: Yeah, friendly fire. I got hit with oh, it. And it, it out, yeah, it turned out it was a ricochet, you know, whatever. So yeah, I've been hit prior to that with the uh, rubber rounds i was getting peppered in the back with those and uh yeah it was just kind of turning the shit and rolling downhill <laughs> no and kidding then, jeez. yeah and then they decided that uh they're gonna uh deploy the cs gas i don't know <laughs> what, you're already gonna, on the ground uh i'm still i get back up and i'm still doing my thing and then all of a sudden i don't know if you've been if, uh uh, the military grade CS gas, but not only does it burn, it takes your vision away and makes you feel like you're suffocating.
0: Yeah. I have so, declined the one opportunity that I had to try to do that. You know, I, I took the taser, but I'm not willing to take the gas. No, thanks.
1: Yeah. So that, that's, you know, it feels like you're suffocating, you know, even though you're breathing, it feels like you're not it's just whatever we have CN and CS gas. And we call it cry now, cry sooner. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry>. Oh. <laughs> i read some really, really horrible stuff, but, uh, you know, that takes my vision away. So,
0: so now you're shot in the leg, trying to deal with somebody who's been disemboweled and now you can't see. Great.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So we kind of, you know, it wasn't the best days, but you know, we had talked about, um, in the early days, you know, what did you do for training and whatever? And we always used to get spiritual, you know, you go up to Idlewild and, you know, maybe partake in some herbage or, you know, some alcohol to, uh, you know, free your mind so your ass will follow. And we used to do this thing. We called it Master po drill, where you blindfold yourself and you go take off running through the woods and see who was the one that hit the tree first, you know. So it was like a stupid training exercise we used to do because back then, you know, the martial arts is mystical and we always wanted to to. To be like, you know, Kung Fu at the Shaolin Temple and Master Po, he can do things blind. And, mm. But it basically just turned out to a laugh fest. You know, you'd be hearing somebody run and fly and hear him run into a tree. But it was things like that. It's like I never knew how that was going to benefit me. So here I am right in the middle of all this carnage and, you know, I can't see. And uh, I, took, I took out a lot of people that day, including two officers that came up <laughs> behind me, you know, they didn't they, they tell me that they were coming. I felt really bad about this, you know. And, well, yeah, uh, but by
0: the same token, if you're in the middle of carnage and they don't announce that we're friendlies, you know, I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, and then of course, you know, afterwards, you know, it's my fault for being out there. And it was like, well, I was ordered to be out there. And then then I was racist because I was hit in a disproportionate number of one race over another. And, uh, then I hit the officers, so they were going to send me to remedial baton training, and, yeah, you know, it just it's one of those things, you know, I understand legalities or whatever, but uh, there was one of those situations that kind of just kind of changed my perspective on it, everything. I completely yeah, believe, I believe be that. that. I used to be that guy that, now this is the way you do it, it's rigid, there's no variables to it, you know, you do it this way, your stances have to be this way. Yeah, after that, I just but I couldn't do it anymore. And I, just, I I can't do anything that I couldn't use. I don't waste my time doing things. Like I personally, I don't care if I ever do finger set again and people are going to jump on. Well, you don't know the hidden moves and you don't know the way Mr. Parker. Well, good for Mr. Parker and good for all those people out there. I'm, I'm this is just my personal opinion. You know, I'm happy for you. You keep doing things you want, but you know, you get double shifts. You know, working 36 hours with the drive, and then you've off, and you got to come back in and repeat. Yeah, you're not going to have a lot of time to work on everything. So Man. maybe my skill skill levels have kind of dropped. You know, I can you do form six? Well, I really need to?
0: Yeah, I mean, and no disrespect to anybody else out there, but you know, you get to tenth degree black, ninth degree black. I mean, why? What? what right does anybody have to tell you that you should be doing this or you should be doing that? At that point, you kind of make your own decisions for yourself, right?
1: Well, that's how I looked at it. And, you know, my whole thing is what works what doesn't work. And, you know, it's hard. So, well, you need to practice more. You need to do this. Well, it's kind of hard to practice when it's every day mm-hmm. <laughs> you go out there, you know, after all, these are the people that we are defending ourselves against, you know, muggers, rapists, um, Serial killers, all that, all that stuff, right?
0: And they're all in one place for you. Imagine that.
1: Yeah. So, so try to feel intent, you know, with a whole group of people that want to kill you, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's kind of a learning experience. But uh, yeah, you still get your critics. But uh, I had an analogy, and Mr. Parker was always fond of analogies. But um, mine was like I related learning martial arts to learning about sex. You know, would you like to hear it? <laughs> sure. You know, it's like it's like um, you know, you can take the vice the virgins on the school playground. You know, who lie about their experiences. Yeah, you, know, you can ask one of those knowledgeable teachers with all those titles, and degrees, and letters after their names who use proper wording, terminology, and techni- uh, uh, terminology. And their lectures are basically so dry that you have to use a lube to keep from chasing. You can read a book on the subject or watch a DVD and practice by yourself. Or if all else fails, if you hang out in a bar long enough, it's bound to happen. So I'm I'm a big proponent of Kimbo field trips. So if you want to learn how to do something, go to where the action is and figure it out for yourself.
0: I think that applies to just about anything in life. You know, there's, there's absolutely no substitute for experience.
1: Well, you know, that's, that's the big thing. You know, people see things from one side, they have an opinion. When they see things from all possible sides, they have perspective. But in the end, nothing beats the experience. You know, they say, well, wh- what's the best martial arts that you could do? You know, what do you think about this? And, you know, they all have some value. But if you're serious about learning a particular martial art, I'd suggest finding one that's, you know, in used condition. So that there's no misunderstandings about what works and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, it's you know yeah, it's what, what's game. your goal? You know, if if your goal is that you want to get in good shape and you wanna compete in tournaments, then find an art that's geared towards that. Your goal is you wanna find something that's gonna keep you alive, you know, find something that people who are doing the gig that you wanna be doing have been practicing themselves.
1: I, remember, you know, I admire those people that are tournament grand champions or whatever. I always wanted to do that. I love going to the international. I take notes, I'd see somebody do a specific um, freestyle move or whatever I like. I'd write it down. I'd see self-defense stuff I haven't had yet. I'd take notes. And that that was the internationals of the old days. And it it was just so awesome to go there and and watch. And then, you know, I never really participated. A lot of my um, classes was Mr. Demick. We were freestyle or, um, you know, uh, private classes. And my freestyle time was I'd freestyle him. And so, you know, I never knew how good I was doing because I was never, ever going to do as good as Mr. Demick does. I mean, that guy is just phenomenal. You know, he, he's so impressive. It's just amazing. But I always wanted to, you know, be grand champion. You know, I, you know, I had those fantasies. And I had a girlfriend at the time that wanted to uh, go into tournaments. You know, she was a lower belt. So, you know, I went with her, and Mr. Demick put together a tournament team to start back out to see how we do. and. um Went into the first tournament, and it was the um, state championships in Santa Ana. When I saw Kaliwalu, I hope I didn't mispronounce the last name, one of his tournaments. And, you know, they were always notable in you know, Orange County. Everybody would turn up from everywhere competing those things. And, um, you know, I'm not saying anything about my abilities or skills, but, you know, the division that I was in had 30 competitors in. And I ended up taking second place in my first tournament. That was in the black belt division. That was the black belt heavyweight. So I don't say that's my skills or abilities. That's what Mr. Dimmick taught me. And he has a long list of champions that he's developed over the years. And his sparring ability is unsurpassed surpassed by none. I've seen a lot of martial artists out there and my opinion of him he, he's just so impressive. He's the fastest, strongest, most powerful people I've ever seen or been, been around. And, you know, I might sound biased because I've been with him all these years, but, you know, that's my opinion, and uh, I stand by it.
0: There's something to be said for loyalty to your instructor, too, so there you go. Yeah, well,
1: you know, he is always, it doesn't matter what I come with him what question I ask, you know, what, what can I do here? What can I do there? You know, he always knows the answer. And, you know, it's like, how do you do that? How he's just light years above, you know, what what I've seen. You know, he promoted me to 10th block, um, but he's light years ahead of me. <laughs> I'm just always in awe when I go to train with him. You know, I, everything that I've accomplished done or been successful at including saving my life you know i owe it all to him and you know my philosophy when i first came there was you know from the judo and jujitsu, hey you know we get in a fight and i kind of throw my shoulder out there and it's like grab me so i can throw you <laughs> you know i wanted to learn how to fight and uh with with Kimpo, and he he's the one that taught me how so i learned from the best in my opinion.
0: That's awesome. Okay, Sorry, so ramble. no, you gave you actually you gave me a great segue to our next topic. So, how about uh, telling us about, you know, what were those training classes with Mr. Dimick like? You know, what did you guys, you know, what did you guys do? Every school I've been to has, you know, didn't matter if it was a different teacher in the same school. Every class is a little bit different. So, uh, like I said, mentioned earlier, there's not a whole lot of information out there about Mr. Dimmick and you know what training with him was like. Short of people like. Howard Singer gave us a little bit on his podcast appearance. And uh, anybody who I get the chance to talk to, I always like to ask, you know, what were those classes like? What did you, what were the focus of classes? And, you know, how, how did the breakdown of how many minutes did you spend on this and how many minutes did you spend on that? What did that, what, did, what was that like?
1: Well, we didn't need to waste time with the uh, basics of square horses and stuff only at the earlier belt levels. But once you get into the black belt range, you know, it was more about freestyle concepts. Um, strategies, approach, um, fakes, um, counters. You, know, you have your basic three types of, of fighters, your sitters, your uh, um, attackers, and um, the ones that you know, are counter fighters. So it's basically built off that kind of thing. You know, um, the concept of the three shields is from a freestyle approach. And most people, you know, you hear freestyle, you think point fighting or tournament fighting. Um, it's free to use your style. You're going to use your special natural weapons. Um, you use your hands as shields, feet as shields. Um, you block certain specific areas As in unison with each other or independently, like all of a sudden, hey, somebody shoots you in the leg. <laughs> you can't use that anymore, so what are you going to do? You know, so you're able to cover and incorporate other aspects. You can either go from a self defense technique into the freestyle mode or freestyle into um, what he has now is called like a connectors program that we do for the upper ranks. And what it basically is, I used to call them 20 foot drills where he would give you two or three short movements and then another few, whatever, and you can interconnect them and place them in any order. And then you have that geometric progression about how you can use them. And we would just go up and down. He, I would be offensive, and he would go back using his three kills, And then um, he would come at me, and I would go back. And then every now and then somebody would make a mistake, and they'd go off into another strike. And then you'd automatically uh, what they can do, we're able to um, deflect it and then go back and regain the initiative. A lot of people in Kempo, when they do techniques and Kemper, in my opinion, is a technique-based art. Would you would you say that or a system?
0: I think the vast majority of the Kemper lineages are. Yes.
1: So I was always taught that techniques are your last line of defense. You know, here it is. They've come through all of your zones and ranges, and they've laid hands on you. And how you do the technique. While, like I said, that was always our last line of defense, not our first. Our first was always being in a fighting, fighting mode. So you can always be in a fighting mode. You know, you're at a party, you're trying to contain yourself, but, you know, if you see a problem arising, some guy comes in from across the room, you know, he's coming at you, you're going to start getting in your position, you're going to start rearranging your stance, you're going to start moving, you know, mobile, and then you're not going to say, well, I'm just going to stand there and throw five swords at somebody. You know, I, some people might be able to do that. I, I personally go and I'm going to get into the freestyle mode, use my three shields and then go off into these, uh, connector concepts. But, uh, you know, people say, well, oh, you know, five sorts works and this and that. And I, I'm not telling anybody what to do again. Anything I've said or mentioned today is my own personal, um, opinion of how I've done things and what it's worked for me. And I've shared you know, the information freely. If you want to use it, great. If not, um, you know, that's fine. That's why I quit going on, um, forums. You know, I get tired of arguing the same point over and over again. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, but let, let's say Mr. Parker, you know, if he was still alive and you were with him, I, w- I would probably say five swords would be one of his favorite techniques. Would you agree with that?
0: That seems to be a lot of people in Kempo's favorite technique. <laughs>
1: Okay, so let's say Mr. Parker gets pissed off at me, and all of a sudden he throws a punch at me. Do you think, honestly, that I'm going to be able to pull off five swords on Mr. Parker?
0: But having met, not met Mr. Parker myself, but here are the rumors of him, probably not.
1: Yeah. So you know, you got something that's your favorite technique, and this is how I personally develop my techniques: is I reverse engineer them. I try to figure out how to defeat the technique can you take it apart and you know I've shown people well you know if you do this to me on fire swords I'm gonna break your arm you do this I'm gonna break the other arm and then they say well you're not gonna do that because okay uh, I, again I I'm not here to argue with you I'm just trying to make a point out and you know people don't, uh, don't respond to that or they don't really like to hear that it's it's their comfort zone their comfort blanket and if hey, five work swords has worked for me and it's always going to work but you go on YouTube, anybody can go up there, pull a five sword and see what the technique is. You know, it's kind of like, in my opinion, in football, you know, giving the other team your plays. If you're so good and you're so adept at, you know, performing uh, the plays the way they're supposed to why not give the playbook to your opposing team? What difference was it going to make? But you do have that ability, you know, to audible off. If you're on the offense, you can say argue well the defense can score points too. But yeah, that's true only when the offense makes a mistake. But you can um, audible off, you can change plays up, you can run different routes, you can confuse them. So yeah, you're more likely when you're offensive um, to be able to score points or to or whatever the case may be than if you're just always defensive. So yeah, the way three shields. Work is- Try to regain the initiative so we can become offensive again and um it, it's kind of hard for somebody to think about hurting you killing you wanting to knock your lights out when you're just right on top of multiple attacks you know to their battle zones and whatever they're going to have to deal with that so now all of a sudden their attitude changes from uh, attacking to now they're having to defend so that's the whole thing we're moving forward. You know, a lot of the tempo techniques, you have to stay in a zone. You have to stand there. You have to be in this stance, and you have to wait for your opponent or move them into this position so you can continue on. Uh, the three shields approach, you know, it's basically, you know, we're a lawnmower, and you're a blade of grass, and we're just going to mow you down. And, you know, that's kind of putting it bluntly, and it's it's a little more finesse than that, but... I'm not waiting for anybody. Somebody throws an arm off the block. Hey, guess what? That's the target. It's not your face. I'm going to break your arm. You <laughs> know, I'm going to break your leg. I'm going to, whatever you put out there, that, that's the target. And then I'm just going to gradually just try and take it away from you. But people argue, well, you can't do this. and You can, can't do that. And it's like, well, okay, thank you for your, I appreciate it. But that's my belief system. And I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not trying to. Sell anybody anything. I actually give it away for free. You want to just ask. And I'll tell you, and you know that's how I learn. You know, having conversations with people. I I try to emulate them. You know, they told me, hey, this worked, and it's like I didn't care what rank you are. I'm not stuck on the fact that you know you're this that or whatever rank. You know, you're a white belt. A lot of people have different experiences, and you know what you've been through you might consider to be horrendous or graphic or, you know, you can't function anymore in life. You have PTSD because it's so bad, but, you know, there's people out there that have been through a lot worse, you know, and have a lot more experiences. So I would prefer to have somebody, you know, coming back from a war zone telling me how do you survive in combat, you know, than telling me how you know to deal with that drug accountant in a bar that's throwing a punch at me. So that's just my opinion. I have a lot of them.
0: No, it seems like it's a uh well thought out one based on everything you've been through in your life. So
1: Well people tell you, you know, okay, well you're this, that, or you know, you have a title or you're grandmaster or master, whatever. I, I prefer Rich or Richard. You know, I'm approachable. If you want to talk to me, you know, if you I let people choose what they wish to talk to me, you know, or call me and whatever. Um but whatever it is that you, you come up with, um you know, it, it's something that needs to be spontaneous and it needs to be doable. And, you know, wrong time to find out something that doesn't work is right in the middle of uh you know, trying to save your life because somebody takes it seriously, mm-hmm. you know, and you're trying trying to counter it. And that's how it is. You know, I, I don't go by titles. Um I remember seeing Muhammad Ali you know, trying to take karate and he's in a He's in a uh, neutral bow and he's wearing a white gi and a white belt. And I just thought, wow, how unnatural is that? <laughs> you know, you, you take somebody who's probably one of the best fighters in the world and you're limited him to what his responses are. You know, you got to be able to improvise, adapt, overcome, mobile, agile, hostile. Um, I, I just, and at work, I just can't do anything in a solid stance. You know, I know Mr. Parker used to always say, well, you know, the highest levels you can attain is the gaseous state of people." You know, now we know that there's plasma, there's a fourth level, but, you know, how do you become gaseous if you're in a solid stance? And, you know, there's some valuable questions that you can ask yourself when, when you just start to analyze things. I used to make some really awesome comments for the coolest things, you know, like somebody would challenge him and say, hey, let's meet in a phone booth at six o'clock. And i wow, that was, that was really ingenious, you know, a taekwondo guy in a phone booth. But I personally wouldn't want to be that close to somebody in that range, you know, trying to defend myself. And I, I'm not taking anything away from Mr. Parker. That guy's a genius, you know, Mr. Demick just, talks about how awesome and phenomenal he was. And I used to always stop by and say hi to him and, you know, ask him questions. And, you know, sometimes he would look at me in disgust. (laughs) Sometimes he would kind of like, okay, you're on to something, you know, he would offer me advice. And then I, I remember one time I said something to him and he actually stopped and he looked at me and he had to think about it for a minute. And I was kind of, kind of proud of myself and then i followed up with another question that was stupid and he rolled his- <laughs> but uh he was always very nice to me um the first time i actually talked to him he was dragging at the internationals um there was a bucket full of sodas and ice and he was dragging it and i came up behind him and i grabbed the other end of it to help him and he wasn't uh, um didn't see me come up on him and when he looked at me real quick i had my hand covering my face and he had that real big bright smile that he has so you know he was kind of impressed with that but uh yeah you know, i i never realized that he he knew people's names you know and he could he knew you you know all you had to do was be introduced to him one time he knew who you were who you trained with what rank all of that that's awesome so, you know, you get a little frustrated with me because I kept reintroducing myself every time. I do it <laughs> twice. Well, so you get a little frustrated. But uh, no, like I said, I don't mean that to sound any way derogatory towards Mr. Park or anything he's done. So it, it was just to point out some you know, things to think about.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was a negative at all. So what do you think, uh, this is a question I was going to ask earlier, and we, we dovetailed into some other stuff, so I'm bringing it back now. Um, so what do you think are the, the, or what do you see as the characteristics that distinguish the three-shields method of Kempo from some of the other lineages?
1: I well, it was just the um, fighting aspects of the hands. You can go offensive or defensive. Most of what I see, we've talked about Kempo being technique-based. Well, when you're technique-based, that pretty much makes you um, have to be in the defensive mode. Uh, the three shields, if you're in freestyle mode, again, you know, free to use your style, you're able to throw fakes, you know, feign, uh, reposition in a way that allows them to uh, come down a predetermined path that you've already set. Well, it doesn't really matter if you've already thought the concept out ahead of time, what path they take, they're all dead ends. You know, so you kind of narrow the response, and it's like that analogy Mr. Parker's saying about playing pool. that It's not just about knocking the ball in the pocket. It's about aligning your next shot so you can follow up and have multiple success and strikes, you know, and obviously the person, you know, that can do that or has that ability is going to come out ahead. You stand toe to toe with somebody, any, any person, whatever their skill level is can land a lucky punch. So I'm not real comfortable staying in that, you know, touchy zone, you know, within the three feet and then just exchanging blows. Um, I learned a lot when I was um, in law enforcement and working as uh, uh, a company as a um, security loss prevention. You know, when you go out to arrest somebody, you know, you're basically the person that's attacking them. You're placing hands on them to facilitate arrest, to put handcuffs on them. You know, so you better really know what it is that you're doing and what their counters are, and put yourself in a position that kind of limits the response. Otherwise, you're going to get tagged because you know, you're in a department store and you walk up to somebody and tell them they're under arrest, and they just look at you and say, You know, you're not a cop. And then you pull out that little tin badge and say, Well, I'm a security agent of the store. <laughs> you know, they it's going. To, they're going to fight you every time. You know. So I, I learned a lot about that. And you know, people don't like to be touched. But law enforcement, you know, when you facilitate arrest, you have to place hands on people. So that, that's another aspect that most people don't consider. I'm always defensive. I'm never offensive. And I think once once a lot a lot of people can make that adjustment, um, it's going to really just open up so many possibilities to them with their, um, tempo that they're just going to be blown away by what they're going to be able to accomplish.
0: That's great. And like, like I said, there's not a whole lot of information out on net regarding, you know, the three shield lineage. So I'm personally just really curious about it. So thank you very much for sharing that. I really do appreciate it.
1: No problem. Is there something about that, that I didn't answer that maybe I take for granted that I know, or that he taught me.
0: I think my question was just basically it's a, it was a general, you know, lineage base because I'm just not familiar with the whole lot of the three shields method. So uh, I appreciate, but you know, starting to clear back, up some stuff.
1: Well, back in the old days, you know, he, he was back and started in the um, 1956, you know, when they were sparring, they used to do that old style um, with their hands down by their side, you know, one hand cocked down the other hand low. Well, Mr. Demick had played a lot of basketball. And um, he was thinking, well, they always tell you to kind of keep your hands up. So instead of having my hand down at his side, I'm going to keep it up in vertical and then have my other hand here and then I can block. And then he just kind of would try things. And back in those days, they didn't have uh, freestyle techniques. So he would invent some things and he would come up with some ideas and you know, he, he had uh, some good success with it. And... You know, that one thing led to another and led to another. So this was something that he was always teaching. And like he said, uh, he gives Mr. Parker full credit for everything he ever did. It wasn't like he was going against the grade or I'm doing something better or different. It's nothing, nothing like that at all. It was just, this is how I learned how to defend myself from what Mr. Parker was teaching him. Because Mr. Parker, you know, such a genius and everything thing that he did and uh you know a lot of people don't realize that and it's easy to criticize and critique somebody you know that's been gone for almost 30 years you know without them you know still being here and I'm sure the amount of times Mr. Parker changed up Kempo that its present day form wouldn't be anywhere um like it is today in its final form you know a lot of people Say well, this is what Mr. Parker taught me, and that's great. And I'm going to teach this till the day I die. And I totally understand that, and I respect that. And but I, yeah, you know, I've done some things, and I say, wow, that doesn't work. You know, I've had some firsthand experience, and um, you know, a lot of people have you know expressed the theories. You know, I've had some reality checks that let me realize, wow, if I keep doing that, I'm going to die. Like one of my other things I told you about the mass attacks, you know, of course I got to experience that, but the other thing I was kind of partial to was uh, weapons defenses. Cause I have a tendency to uh, get stabbed a lot. And,
0: um, <laughs> just, just friendly advice that may not be a, a, a career path you want to associate with going forward. Just, you know,
1: well, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, you're a grandmaster. or You're this or you're that. Like I said, I prefer Richard Richard. And, um, I I don't, well, you know, are you, are you, you think you're an expert or you think you know this or you think you know that? It's like, you know, the only thing I claim is to be as an expert and what not to do. And, uh, the only way I've gotten to this amount of time made it this far was just luck and my teachings and that I was able to adjust and change up. Um, that, that's the whole thing, you know, that you have to be able to do that. But, uh, I was teaching uh, knife defenses, how to disarm. Now, when I was down in San Diego, I had a a buddy of mine that used to be a Navy SEAL, and you know, he would tell me that wake up on Coronado Beach and early in the morning, you know, the SEAL training they like to come out at that time frame, and they would let you participate with them in their hand-to-hand training because they always like to have fresh meat. And They like to see um, what they could use to adapt and change up and what works and what doesn't and it's always nice instead of being up on your buddies but being up on some unsuspecting member of the public so we get invited to have uh, weapons training or hand-to-hand or whatever the thing would be and yeah you know, i from the jujitsu and i'd also trained in aikido you know i had some knowledge about the wrist uh, locks and things and so i always had some success in uh, disarming people and you know, I was able to take their weapons away from them, and um, you know, we practiced in the surf and things at that time, and you know, I learned a lot of things from them. And you know, they would ask me some things, and yeah, you know, they were real good at holding their breath, so you know, I might be able to walk them out and hold them in the water for five minutes before they tap out, but you know, they would release the knife, so um, that led, led into other um, teachings of law enforcement and, um, teaching the Marines at the 29 palms before their deployment about weapon, uh, disarms. So that was just something that I, I put a lot of focus in. And when I was teaching at the time, I had been up to, um, face the knife eight times and I had been stabbed three. And one time I looked out and I had a, uh, stab proof vest on. So, you know, I go to teach a class about what I've learned. and. Uh, You know, that might be good Hall of Fame average, you know, for baseball or something. But, you know, if you get stabbed that many times and you're teaching a knife defense class, you know, people go, wow, you suck. But I survived it. You know, so it's like, hey, this is what I learned. And, you know, when you take a normal class and you tell your instructor or something, hey, you know, I I did this and I got stabbed. What, you know, what do you think their normal response is?
0: Well, is this really going to work?
1: Well, it's like, well, you did the technique wrong, right?
0: Oh, yeah, that too. You
1: know, it's, it, it, yeah, so it's like, okay, well, you did the technique wrong. Well, you know, getting stabbed, that's the wrong time to find out you're doing something wrong. So, you know, I had through my years, I had uh, been stabbed, like I said, four times, and then I went to Mr. Demick, and I was concerned about it, and, you know, I asked him, and I said, well, what, what am I doing wrong? And he said the most profound thing to me, and that just changed my life. And he, you know, he goes, "Well, you tell me what you're doing wrong. You've stab more times than I have." <laughs> you know, it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was started laughing. It was like, wow. I mean, there's the answer. I've never thought about that. So I, I said, "Well, I did this and then, then he goes, "Well, what if you do this?" And then, you know, he would offer his advice, and then, you know, we kind of developed into something. And you know, so. Then I started teaching, and then I got into these other things. And during that riot, you know, people were coming at me with weapons and whatever. So, you know, I, I went from one on one to multiple attacks with weapons. And, you know, the strategies, once I changed up and once I figured out what I was doing wrong, you know, the first four times I got stabbed or slashed. And then it gradually built up to 13. So, you know, I gradually started to incorporate what he had suggested and what i had come up with and you know since that time i was pretty fortunate but you know it's like anything else you know you're thinking all this empty hand stuff and i I finally at the end i said you know the 13th and last time i faced the blade i said you know screw all this uh this empty hand bullshit so i just shot the guy (laughs) and that seemed to work the best so you know my advice about weapons is never ever be unarmed you know it's great that you're uh training empty hands but you know nothing nothing beats a weapon
0: yeah there's a video out there i think it's dan and asano that's actually the one on the video but it was a training series for law enforcement and uh i don't have the link on me off the top of my head but you can find it if you google it on youtube uh but it's the 21 foot rule and every single time i mean danny is just all over every single one of those guys is trying to get their firearm out to do anything about it so you know, being alert being, and being aware of what's going on is number one. and But then number two is make sure you can get your stuff if you need it.
1: Well, that's a law enforcement tactic. You take two hands to grab your pistol. You know, I was always taught, you know, the hands are into, um, you know, working independently. You got your right hand. Why Why do you have to go to your gun first? Why don't you just deal with the threat off angle? You know, you never see anybody attacking anybody with a blade. And then and that's that's the secret I learned. You know, you don't do defense on a knife. You attack the blade, and you get past them, and then if you have a weapon, then deploy it, then use it. And, you know, people they pull out a knife on you, and then you pull out a knife on them, and you just start smiling at them. That makes a big difference in their psychological makeup and profile. All of a sudden, they're not as brave as they used to be. Guns, you can still get in because it takes an effort to bring the gun up, you know, unless you're one of those... John Wayne types that wear it on your hip and the hammer's already cocked and you know, you already have one chambered and you got the quick draw holster. You know, then that's a different story, but you know, weapon never, never ever find yourself empty handed with a weapon, you know, make sure you're always, always armed. And that's a simple advice on that. That's free. (laughs) So take it or leave it. It doesn't matter to me. I, I survived mine. I still have my bragging scars.
0: Uh, let's switch over to a little fun subject for a little bit here on the end. Uh, tell us about your Harleys.
1: Well, uh, my wife has the Road King Classic, and I have a fat boy. I have one of those super rare 2003 100th anniversary fat boys that they only made $20 million off. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's the one that got me riding. So I've been enjoying it ever since.
0: Yeah, just about every post I see you put up on Facebook for for something is uh, you you writing or you and her writing?
1: Yeah, well, you know, she got tired of me writing, you know, bitch behind her and screaming. <laughs> words. So she, she told me, you need, to, you need a man up to get your own. It's kind of like, well, you know, at the time, I was like, I didn't want to tell my mother because she, she, uh, my mom was pretty terrifying growing up. I didn't want to have to uh, deal with that. So uh, the thought of her, you know, and then she also talking into getting tattooed and stuff. So my wife used to be in the military, so she she made a man out of me.
0: There's nothing quite like being on a motorcycle, is there?
1: Yeah, it's just a like freedom, and, you know, like I said, it's just it's so much fun not being in a cage, but I got to admit, you know, when you hit a butterfly at 80 miles an hour, that shit hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, trying not to cry and it's like I don't, I don't you know. like I've never been hit that hard in class or, uh, you know, I've I, never been contemplating and punching the face that hard but I little butterfly boy I almost knocked you off the back of the bike so my, uh, my buddy and I had uh, we,
0: we went through a uh, down on 46 between 101 and I-5 in California uh, there's there's a big long like orchard in a couple of different places, and for whatever reason, we're stupid enough that every year that we decided to take that big long ride, it was always during season, and we came back and our helmets and, you know, the front end of the bike is just bugs everywhere.
1: Yeah, you learn not to open your mouth or small.
0: Yeah, I have I haven't taken one in the face yet, but I have taken them in the in the uh, face mask every now and then.
1: Yeah, and it's you know, you get the I had a suicidal bird I was riding the Texas. And um, had one of those big crows, and he was circling me. And it was that long stretch of I ten between um, El Paso and Fort Stockton. And he was circling me, and all of a sudden he lined me up, and he came right at me. And luckily, you know, I had whistled earlier and got a face shield. <laughs> and a bird hit the side of it at eighty miles an hour. So you know that could have ruined my day,
0: uh, or at least your good looks, right?
1: I don't know about good looks, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of happy with the way my mug is. I, I kind of look like John. They call me Uncle Buck because I kind of resemble uh, John Candy. you know. So, But I look like a pissed off John Candy all the time. <laughs> that's great. Was yeah, well, there anything that you wanted to know that I hadn't answered about the three shields? Or?
0: I didn't have anything specific about it just because, like I said, there's not a whole lot of information out there. So it was more just, you know, let's start the conversation on it. You know, I'm not going to lie, my ultimate goal would be I'd love to actually talk to Mr. Dimmick himself, so, you know, I'm hoping I can I I can make that happen at some point. We'll see. But if not, I've already talked to Howard, and I got a chance to talk to you about it, so we've le- at least uncovered a little bit more about Three Shields for the rest of the world. So, there we go.
1: Well, one of uh, his original fighters were more, uh, they were into the tournament scenes, and, you know, like I said, I always admired him and wanted to be that way, but you know, time restraints. I didn't get weekends off, and didn't really get a lot of chance to to participate in that. But uh, you know, I do have a lot of trophies that I've uh, recovered from people that, that didn't think highly you of know, me that do hurt me. So I have like a little trophy case of that. And I think one of my prized possessions is I have a ponytail that I ripped off somebody's head wow. to try to swim. and uh, my wife was okay with it at first, but then the, I had a portion of the scalp that was still attached and it was attracting ants. So she made me take that part of it off, but I saw the ponytail.
0: That's an interesting set of
1: trophies. (laughs) I have a lot of shanks. I think i sent you a picture of those.
0: I wasn't sure exactly what that picture was, but yeah. Okay. Now, now it makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of people, you know, they come at you with a knife or something and it's like, well, okay, it's a knife, but for some reason, an inmate coming at you with a piece of sharpened metal, it was a lot more terrifying, I guess, you know, because you realize that their intent is sincere and they do want to hurt you with it. Not to mention the fact of what they normally dip them in before they try and stab you.
0: Yeah. Not fun stuff.
1: Yeah. They're real fond of dipping them in feces and, you know, trying to uh, get you with that. So it it enhances the wound and makes it infected or get you hepatitis or, all sorts of things. And, you know, that's something a lot of people don't consider when they do uh, techniques. You know, you got to watch out for the bloodborne pathogens. You can, you know, do your little mini form on them, you know, or you can come in and turn into a cuisine Cuisinart with you, you know, if you have a blade. <laughs> but, uh yeah, you might get them, but six months later, they'll get you uh, right. with uh, hepatitis, HIV, or whatever. So.
0: Yeah, all not fun.
1: Yeah, so a lot of people don't consider those things. That's my thing. I try to uh, let people know that it's not what you necessarily see in the studio. You need to expand a little bit. And, um, you know, it's like you can have the greatest teacher in the world, but if you want to truly learn the martial arts, you need to investigate the process yourself. You know, when you're in school, college, or whatever, and you had to write a research paper, did the teacher write your research paper for you, or did they do the research and then tell you the answers, or did they tell you to go do it yourself? Yep. So a lot of it's self-discovery.
0: Completely agree. So. Good times. All right. I had a lot of fun with this particular interview. Uh, we've spoken a few times on Facebook back and forth, but uh, have not had a chance to meet in person yet. So I learned a lot of really cool things. I've seen your name floating around the interwebs for quite some time now, and I'm really, really glad we got a chance to get on the phone and talk. Mr. Post, I really uh, enjoyed having you here.
1: I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thank you for being interested. And listen to what I have to say. My wife gets tired of hearing my stories. so.
0: <laughs> well, now they're going to be out there forever, so yay. Uh, this is the part of the show where I'd like to turn it over to you guys, to our guests, and uh, if there's any stories you want to tell, if there's any you know positive messages you'd like to send out to everybody who's listening, here's your moment. The microphone is yours, sir.
1: Well, if... Um if You have questions or anything? Feel free to ask. I'm more than happy to uh, share with what I know. I don't charge anything. Um, I always think information that's going to save your life is invaluable. You can't put a price tag on that. And you know, I owe Mr. Joe Dimick everything. He saved my life so many times. I I couldn't begin, you know, to thank him. He's not only my instructor, my teacher. Um, he's my family, um, father figure. Big brother, crazy uncle. Any any tag you want to put on him, he's more than met that. So um, as far as, you know, I try kind not of to be too cliche with the, you know, this is a way of life for me. You know, I do it uh, 24-7, 365, because you never know who you're going to run into. I, I meet a lot of people I used to uh, um, know from work, and some of them. You know, it's still not particularly fond of me. I know everybody finds that hard to believe. (laughs) So, but uh, I was just saying, you know, keep up with your training. Uh, Question it. Don't take it for granted that it works just because somebody told you it worked. Go out. I've I've always been that kind of guy. I I don't believe anything and I don't teach anything that I don't believe in, you know, that I haven't used, tried, or um, analyzed for myself. You know, if you a technique person and you believe in techniques then by all means do techniques but my suggestion would be learn how to defeat those techniques you know and in that way you can adjust accordingly so you can uh, figure out you know, what's what you know what, what you're doing wrong or you know or you're vulnerable at a specific angle and um, I, I always try to find a way to do it um, faster quicker easier simpler and my suggestion would be try and try and do that because you never know when you're going to need this. And, you know, a lot of people have used it more than me. A lot of people haven't used it. A lot of people have more experience because, you know, they've been in combat, you know, and then they come in with a white belt and people don't think they have anything to offer. You know, I, I don't care what your rank is. If you got the experience, I'll listen to you. I want to hear what works and what doesn't and proceed from there. So. Uh, now, Mr. Demick had a phrase he always liked to say: "The better the act, the more effective the attack." And um, pretty much that means, you know, if somebody pulls a knife or a gun on you and they expect you to be scared, you know, show them fear. You know, that's what they expect. They they like that. When, you know, the inmates are going to do something. You know, they want to see that you're afraid, and then they make the mistake, and you lead them down that path of destruction, and we regain the initiative. And Like I said, we can go on and on and on about theories and concepts and principles and whatnot. But, you know, I just enjoy talking about it. It's one of my favorite stuff to do. So, I think that's pretty much, I think I finally ran off something to say.
0: Good deal. Okay. So, if people want to contact you, how would you prefer them to get a hold of you?
1: They can get me on Facebook um, or they can contact me through your website if that's okay.
0: Sure. Yeah, if I I usually give out in my closing stuff after, you know, when I'm done with my editing and whatnot, I'll give out more contact information and everything. So if I get any inquiries for Mr. Post, I will be glad to forward them over. No problem.
1: I appreciate that very much, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Likewise. All righty, sir. We'll go ahead and sign off for the day. Uh, very much appreciate having you on the show, and I'm glad I made a new friend in the process.
1: Me too. Thank you for having me, and um sorry I haven't gotten to meet you in person yet, but... Uh,
0: now well, oh, maybe I'll see you on a ride. Who knows?
1: <laughs> definitely.
0: All right, uh, you know, rubber side down.
1: Okay, have a great day. All
0: right, talk to you later. Bye. That was a lot of fun talking with Grandmaster Post. We'd never gotten to really have any significant conversation before we jumped on the phone to record this show, but it felt like I've known him for a long time by the end of the interview. He's down to earth. And he's a really genuine dude. I'm stoked to hear more about the history of Three Shields slash Sampai Kempo under the Joe Dimmick lineage, as there really isn't much out on the interwebs about him. But everyone I've talked to that personally knows Mr. Dimmick has spoken of him with great respect for his skills and knowledge. Hopefully we can get him on the show someday, too. Thank you so much, Grandmaster Post. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. I'm working on a special guest for next week's show. I can't reveal who it is yet, but if everything comes together, we've got another guest who has decades of experience and a host of accolades on his resume. So hopefully uh, we can tune in next week and see who we've got. If you like what you're hearing so far with these episodes, share that positivity. Like ripples in a pond, tell someone you think might enjoy it. Share the links around. It's all about getting the messages out where people can choose to listen to them and learn. So find us at artistofmotion.com. You can subscribe on iTunes at artistofmotion.com slash iTunes. And leave us a rating and a comment or two. And you've got artistofmotion.com slash Google Play. That's all one word, and that'll take you to our Android for Google Play Shop. And again, leave us a rating and a comment or two. We're on Facebook at Artists of Motion. You can email pod at artistofmotion.com. That's it for episode number 16, people. I'm Steve Zelazowski. We'll catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.